This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. I'm wondering, did you want to be a singer when you were little or an actor, a painter even? Something that you really, really always dreamed of doing, but then in the end you just couldn't do it because you were scared off by all the stories you heard about job losses or insecure work. Maybe your parents were like, there's no future in the arts, don't do it, don't waste your time, do something, get a real job. That's what people say. The arts we know have been neglected for years, but today the government announced the bad days are over. They've announced this big new policy, but is it all that it claims to be? What is going to change? Soon we'll be diving into this policy announced today. We've got the arts minister on. He'll answer some of your questions. First, though. Hack. It's encouraging us to sleep around. We are going to be sluts when we're older, all these sorts of things. On Triple J. Being told pornography is going to cause physical holes in your brain. Pages being ripped out of textbooks, encouraging girls to protect their virginity. You know, they sound like the kind of things that you'd come across in a classroom a hundred years ago. But past students say they experienced these teachings at Australian schools recently. It's the focus of a big investigation by the ABC's Four Corners. Past students of these schools have been speaking out. The schools are affiliated to a group called Opus Day. You might have heard of them. And they've got connections to political leaders in Australia, including the Premier of New South Wales. There's a lot in this, so let's find out more. Louise Milligan is a senior investigative reporter at the ABC. She's led this investigation and she's with us now. Hey, Louise, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Hi, Dave. Thanks so much for having me. Like, this is wild stuff that you've been hearing. Students at some of these Sydney schools that are aligned with Opus Day, hearing things like porn causes holes in the brain. Mm. We'll get into those kind of claims in a bit, but I want to take it back a little. Can you explain what Opus Day is? Because a lot of people out there are probably wondering, what is Opus Day? Like, is it part of the Catholic Church? Does it have a lot of influence? Most people don't know anything about Opus Dei and there's a good reason for that because it's very small as an organisation but it sort of punches above its weight in terms of its power that it holds. It's always been a pretty controversial organisation because it's far more conservative than the mainstream Catholic Church. The schools that we're talking about in this Four Corner Story tonight are run by an organisation called the Pared Foundation. They are linked to Opus Dei, affiliated, I suppose is the best word. They have Opus Dei priests who work at the schools. They have Opus Dei numeries who are celibate lay members of Opus Dei who live in study centres. They work in the schools as both teachers and also as mentors. So there's a one-on-one mentorship program that these schools provide for every child. And when you look at the website, it's really glossy and appealing. It looks like this is a great thing. And I'm sure in lots of ways it is. It's um, talking about nurturing the spiritual development, the academic development, and the sort of emotional development of the child. But the thing that's not really clear at all to the parents is that these people are members of Opus Dei. All of the graduates that we have spoken to, and we've now spoken to well over 30, have said that in their experience, all the people who had these roles were Opus Dei numeraries or supernumeraries. 
And what these alumni are telling us is that these places were used to try to recruit them to Opus Day. So Opus Day numeries are expected to practice what's known as self-mortification. So that is, they have a thing called the psyllis, which is a spiky barbed wire chain that they're expected to wear around their thigh once a day, which Alex, the numeries said to us, really hurt, never stopped hurting. Mm. But then they've also got this whip called the discipline. And I sort of said to her, well, you know, what was the point of the discipline? What were you doing while you were whipping yourself? And she said, well, she was praying for the people that she was trying to recruit to Opus Day. I guess the point is that with these schools, although they are aligned to Opus Day, a lot of the parents who send their kids there don't realise how strongly aligned they are, don't realise that there are these recruitment practices going on. So, Louise, as you said, you were speaking to more than 30 former students. Are these students from years ago or are they recent graduates? No. So the first person that I spoke to who sort of sparked this story was a graduate, Claire Harris, from 2001. She actually wrote a piece for The Guardian a few years ago, but she didn't name the school um, Tangara. But all of these Tangara old girls immediately recognised the school that she was talking about. And so people started coming forward to her. And then between her and us doing our investigation, we got testimonials, as I say, from from more than 30 Tangara and Redfield students. They range from 2001 all the way through to 2021. And in fact, more of the students are from the sort of 2017, 2020, 2021 cohorts. That's so interesting. And I mean, the stuff that you were hearing is very disturbing. I want to play some audio now from one student, uh, Sam, who says it felt like she was doing a walk of shame after she told her teacher that she and another girl were going to get their HPV vaccination. She launched into us and, you know, was telling us it was a terrible idea for us to go and get this vaccine. You know, it, it's it's encouraging us to sleep around. We are going to be sluts when we're older, all these sorts of things. I raised the very valid point with her that I could get this virus from my husband, which, of course, fell on deaf ears because why would they want to see logic and reason? She basically told us to not come back after we'd had the vaccine back to that class. I mean, this is crazy, Louise. Like, um, it sounds like the school encouraging students not to get this vaccine. That is the account that we had from numerous alumni of Tangara. They say that letters were sent home. We spoke to a parent who went to a meeting at the school in which it was discouraged and she was in shock. (laughs) And she said that another parent tried to sort of like raise the problem with this and was sort of basically stared down and, you know, no one said any more. The thinking that they were given was that because these girls were expected to marry as virgins, you know, not (laughs) practice any sort of form of contraception beyond the the natural method. They didn't need this and it would encourage them to be promiscuous. The problem is that that doesn't allow for their husbands having carried the virus or had other sexual partners. But also, what if these girls don't take the path that this community mandates for them and decide 
that they want to have other sexual partners, that they don't want to save themselves from marriage, then they're unvaccinated. And there was one woman that we spoke to who said out of her cohort of about 50 girls in her, her year level, only two or three were vaccinated. Wow. Tangara says that it sent these letters home to parents until 2020 while the vaccine was relatively new. Um, the vaccine was in, issued in 2007, so by 2020 it was 13 years old. There does seem to be a really big focus on girls protecting their virginity. Um, yes. Talking about virginal purity, all of that sort of stuff. It, yes. Did that just keep coming up? Yes, a Redfield College, the boys' school um, graduate of 2020, sent me a religion exam in which there's a photograph of duct tape and an old bashed up used car and they're used as analogies for people having multiple sexual partners. So the thing is with the duct tape, and the girls at Tangara told us this as well, that it says on the religion exam, what's the effect of, you know, if you put this up and down your arm, it sort of loses its stick. And the girls were like made to pass sticky tape around the class and they were told that's what happens to you when you have sex before marriage. And in the words of one of the graduates, Isabella Kershaw, who talked about that, you know, you become unuseful and dirty and you don't have any worth anymore. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with ABC Four Corners reporter Louise Milligan about her investigation into some Sydney schools affiliated with Opus Day. Louise, New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet went to one of these schools. Are yes, there strong it, links there? Yes, very strong links. He was the school captain of Redfield and his siblings all went to Opus Day affiliated schools, Redfield and Tangara. He... Um, his parents are Opus Dei supernumeraries. They've come out and said that, said it on a Compass program on the ABC a few years ago. This community, this school community, has absolutely nurtured Dominic Perrottet's political ascendancy and that of other people in the New South Wales Liberal Party. There is one Labor MLC who is in this community too. So when you consider that Opus Dei only has 650 members, now these people, none of them are on the public record as being members of Opus Dei. So has Dominic Perrottet had anything to say about your investigation? Yes. To the Premier's credit, he upon receiving our detailed questions, immediately referred these allegations to the New South Wales Education Standards Authority for an investigation. So he has recognised the seriousness of the allegations. He hasn't answered any of our questions other than that uh, about his knowledge of the practices at these schools. We asked very detailed questions. However, as I say, he's recognised that there is obviously an issue there and that it should be referred to Nessa for an investigation. Look, there's some really intense stuff in this story, but it is very important reporting. You can catch it on Four Corners tonight. It'll also be on iView. There's a big digital story as well if you want to read more and Hack's going to have more information on our socials as well. You can catch that there. Four Corners investigative journalist Louise Milligan, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. I really appreciate you having me on. Hack on Triple J. And I should say, if this has raised any issues for you, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hack 
for tens of thousands of years, this land has been alive with art. On Triple J. You know, if you've got a job in the arts, hats off to you because we know how tough it's been over the past few years. The sector's probably never seen a rockier time. You've been through it. You've been telling us, struggling to find work. Some of you just abandoned the industry altogether recently. Well, today the federal government announced a massive new cultural policy promising to kickstart the arts. More funding, more support, more prominence even in society. Is it going to work though? In a sec, we'll speak with the Arts Minister, Tony Burke, but first, here's Shalala Madora explaining what is in this policy. It's no secret that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese loves to serve up a set. And today, he put his money where his mouth is to announce a huge new policy aimed at helping the struggling arts sector. Let's just hope I'm a better PM than I was a DJ. (laughs) The revived document maps out Australia's cultural policies for the next five years. It is literally through the arts that we build our identity as a nation and a people. It's a pretty massive document, so let's go through the most interesting and important bits. The existing funding body, the Australia Council, will be rebranded to Creative Australia. Under that banner, there'll be a huge focus on supporting First Nations artists through a new advisory body and new laws. We'll have standalone legislation to stamp out fake First Nations art. There'll also be a new body called Music Australia to support the live music industry and recording artists. And a new body for authors too. And remember this? Well, according to this huge report out today, the Australian music industry has serious problems with sexual assault, discrimination and bullying. While the cultural policy aims to tackle that too. A centre for arts and entertainment workplaces within Creative Australia to provide advice on issues of pay, safety and welfare. Crucially, the new workforce body will look at imposing minimum pay and anti-bullying and harassment standards for artists. It's essential that we do this because you are essential workers. Artist Jaguar Jones, who's campaigned for an end to sexism and bullying in the industry, told RN Brecky that she was stoked by the announcement. To finally be heard after fighting and uh, advocating for so long with not much support at all is a really heartening moment for Mm. me. Okay, so you're probably thinking, that all sounds great, but where is the money? The cultural policy will cost about $300 million, including reversing cuts made by the former coalition government nearly a decade ago. There's going to be extra money for developing Australia's gaming industry and creating inclusivity guidelines for people with disability to access the arts. We know there are a lot of young people who are considering studying arts and entertainment at uni or TAFE, but were turned off by the cost. Well, the government has announced it'll review the cost of arts programs as part of its university accord. The arts cannot be left simply to those who can afford to do it. The government wants to boost the amount of Australian content on streaming services, so it's looking into requirements or quotas. But we don't know what that'll look like as yet. Here's Senator Sarah Hanson-Young on RN this morning. Thankful that the government is considering this, that they're putting this on the table. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that update. Let me know what you reckon. Is this going to affect you? 
Are you happy with what's been announced today or you're disappointed it hasn't gone further? You can message in 0439757555. Someone says 300 million isn't really that much at all in the grand scheme of things, especially if it's spread out over several years. Well, let's put that to someone in charge. We've got the Arts Minister Tony Burke with us now. Hey, Minister. Thanks for joining us on Hack. Hey, Dave. Good to be back. Huge day for you. Big announcements, uh, big promises, a big star-studded event to launch this new policy. It's called Revive and, you know, clearly a lot of money, a lot of effort's gone into putting this together. I'm wondering, though, when you think about how much has been lost already in the arts sector, do you think that this package is actually enough to bring the arts back from the brink? Look, I think it's enough to turn the corner. And what we're doing, there's a mixture of the funding, but also some structural changes we're making where, you know, up until now, but before the pandemic hit, if you looked at what did the federal government do, you sort of, there were three different ways that arts gets funded. You get the direct government funding, you get philanthropists funding, you get the commercial sector. And effectively, we had one body that dealt with the government funding, another one that dealt with philanthropy. And if you're in the commercial sector, you're on your own. What has become really clear is for some sections of the arts, you know, particularly particularly contemporary music uh, and writers as well, there's a whole lot of changes going on out there that unless we get some government policy and some strategic direction, people are just going to be smothered. If you look at the ARIA charts that came out over the weekend, uh, the, the top 50 albums, there's only, only two Australian albums there. One of them's Spacey Jane, but the other's in excess. And so if we want our artists to be able to have a livelihood that's going to see them through where this is you know, a career, a profession, a, a job that they can work through for their life, then we need government to, to change direction on how it supports music and writing in particular. Well, in this policy, there does seem to be this big push to focus on bolstering mainstream commercial content, as you say. Is that because you think the arts in Australia has been a bit elitist in the past? I do think there was a view that things that are popular will take care of themselves. I, I think that was the view. But what's been happening is uh, the stuff that's popular for for Australian music, say, as, as an example, uh, it's getting squeezed out by international competition. And we need to remember, you know, we are a small population that speaks a language that a whole lot of really big countries speak as well. And so we're always going to have a situation where unless you're really helping your local industry along, American content and UK content in particular has a chance just to really come right over the top. If you're a young creative, a musician, an artist, can you give some real-world examples of what this will mean for you, how these changes are going to directly impact your work and your opportunities going forward? Yeah, can I give two sorts of examples? One as a creator and the second as a worker. Uh, as a creator, there'll now be a government-funded body that has an interest in trying to foster your career. So, whereas previously, government's very much left you on your own and it's been an accident as to whether you got a good manager uh, or whether you had a manager who, who wasn't all that well trained trying to uh, help your way through, there'll now be a government body that's looking through and trying to foster 
uh, careers of, of emerging artists and also trying to make sure that we're also fostering the, the careers of mid-career artists. So, you know, it's, it's too often the case that once someone uh, hits their, their mid-30s, uh, particularly for, for women artists but not exclusively, work can get a whole lot harder. So there needs to be a work plan so that people can stay in the industry. So that's the part as a creator that's really important. But separate to that, the bit as a worker, I was really affected by a speech that I heard Dina Lynch, who, you know, when you play music, her artist name's Jaguar Jones, uh, a speech she gave at the Australian Women in Music Awards a few years ago, where she just said, look, I didn't come here to be an activist. I want to be an artist. Uh, but just stressed the frustration of not having a safe workplace. So the other thing that we've done, which is really important for work, uh, artists coming through, is we'll be establishing a centre for arts and entertainment workplaces within Creative Australia, and it'll be dedicated to putting together the codes of conduct with industry, to doing everything we can to make sure that we are, in fact, providing safe workplaces for people as they come through. And then for those companies that knock on the door of government funding from time to time, to be able to say to them, well, you're keeping up to date with these codes and delivering a safe workplace free from bullying and free from harassment, that's your entry card. And if you're not doing that, don't come knocking on the door for government funding. There's this new body, Creative Australia. It's basically a bigger, revamped version of the Australia Council for the Arts. I know it's being fleshed out. A lot more money is being put in. There's kind of different components of it now. But are some of these changes, like the name and stuff, just changes for the sake of changes? No, it's to... It's completely reimagining the the Australia Council. So the things the Australia Council used to do, it'll still do. Uh, But... The philanthropic world of, you know, big donations that run some sections of the arts, that used to be in a separate organisation. That'll come under Creative Australia as well. And these steps I've been talking into the commercial world, that's something that Creative Australia will do in ways that the Australia Council never did. The other thing that I I really should make clear, we've mentioned three of the new bodies that'll exist within Creative Australia. I, I want to mention the fourth which is there'll also be a dedicated First Nations body. You can't talk about Australian culture without starting with First Nations. One of the challenges that's often happened for First Nations works, if I I give a non-music example, uh, let's let's take a stage play, for example. Uh, Someone writes a play, First Nations playwright, uh, starts on a small stage where they've got full creative control and they want to take it to a bigger theatre company. The challenge is always that the bigger theatre company often is going to be a non-First Nations theatre company, but the non-First Nations theatre company will hold all the financial power. And often we've found that these works, as they grow, you get a frustration from the person who created it that they've lost their creative control on the way through. Having this First Nations body with its own board, its own dedicated funding, and its board obviously would be a First Nations board, means that we'll now have financial power for those First Nations artists that they have a work that they want to grow the scale of. So when they go to a company saying, you know, I I want, this is how I want it to grow, bigger audience, you know, more cast, whatever it might be, 
they arrive with a level of financial power and the financial power means creative power. Minister, just finally, the thing is there's this real perception out there in the broader community and people in the arts will understand this, that a job in the arts is not a real job. How are you going to change that? I mean, is is this kind of policy announcement really going to help shift that and get young people to to get into the arts and want to study the arts? And I mean, like we need to talk about higher education and all, all like costs of courses and all those things as well. But are we going to see more people want to pursue that career? Oh, I hope so. And I thought there was a, I thought today's launch was pretty pretty important to hear. Yeah. Anthony Albanese is, as you know, Prime Minister of Australia, standing up saying these are real jobs. This is a real industry. I'm not pretending that everything changed today. It didn't. But the direction changed. The trajectory changed. And that's a big step. And, you know, for a long time when you talked about this sector, from government there was a culture war waging. Well, you know, we haven't fixed everything, but I can tell you as of today... There's no culture war going on from government, but there is a cultural policy to start to get things moving again. All right. Lots of info out there. There's heaps to pour over, I'm sure. People are going to be wanting to look into the details. We'll be following this closely as well in the months ahead. Arts Minister Tony Burke, thanks for joining us on Hack. Thanks heaps, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And hey, we've got a lot of comments coming through, particularly from people in the arts. Um, Someone says, hey, Dave, we all celebrate an Australian making number one in the hottest 100. So regardless if this new government funding for the arts is enough, at least it starts the conversation. I want to get into it a bit more now with someone who can break it down and who has a, a view across this more broadly. Dr. Karen Hans is with the University of the Sunshine Coast. She researches cultural policy and leadership. Dr. Hans, you've had a bit of a look at the detail. Do you think the government's got its priorities right here? Yeah, look, it is quite a lengthy document, but on first read, it does seem to be quite comprehensive and whole of government in its approach, which is something that we look for um, in a sound policy. So under the title Revive, we have this banner statement, changing the trajectory, which is referenced throughout the document. And I think in terms of priorities, it's really important that the First Nations arts and artists and heritage are being placed as the first pillar in this policy. This is long overdue, and it's about time that the First Nations art and artists were central to Australian culture. And the second thing that I think this policy does really well is addressing the past decade of erasure and underfunding of the arts and by acknowledging that some things just have not worked that well and that there's need for improvement in the infrastructure and the culture of working in the arts. Are there any concerns you've got with the policy, though, or surprises by things that weren't included? Yeah, I think the breadth of the policy is quite surprising in the way that it goes beyond just talking about the arts. And it takes quite a broad view of culture, which of course the arts plays a central role in in terms of showcasing what our culture is. But it does this by recognising that culture is both visible and invisible and includes statements about the importance of learning First Nations heritage, preserving First Nations languages, the importance of architecture and even the sounds and feel of our suburbs. And the other thing I think is really surprising is the overhaul of the Australia Council, which has been around since the days of Whitlam in the 60s. Now, this is something that the arts sector has long advocated for. 
But this policy has committed to turning it into something of a super organisation with a number of existing organisations folded into it and a couple of dedicated units within it, like Minister Burke just referenced, First Nations-led board and a centre for arts and entertainment workplaces. Now, this is in some ways very necessary to rebuild and realign grants programs and grants governance with the objectives of the policy. But I think the concern is quite valid that this could simply be an expensive and time-consuming rebranding exercise that might delay some of the action that has been promised in the policy. What about education? Like, is there more that we should be doing there in terms of educating like young kids about the arts and how to get involved? Yeah, I actually think this is one of the most exciting aspects of the policy and the policies tackled this through a number of different ways. So there's a few statements in the document that emphasise how important arts education is. And by embedding this appreciation into primary and secondary schools, we're building and validating future choices. So the choice to be an artist and have a career in the arts all of a sudden becomes visible because students can see other people doing it and they understand the value of it. But this is also really important because we're building future audiences. Now, I'm a lecturer in the tertiary sector, so it was also really exciting to see that the policy has committed to review the 2020 Jobs Ready package that asked students who are studying arts and humanities degrees to pay much more than if they were studying other fields. And and, um, and we'll be we'll be looking at that a bit more uh, on hack um, over the next few months. Actually, look, there's there's so much to get into. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we appreciate uh, your insight, Dr. Karen Hans from the University of the Sunshine Coast. Thank you so much for joining us on hack. Thanks, Dave. And we've got some more messages coming through. Moose from Nowra says, I'm an Aboriginal artist. I've been trying to publish a comic for years to get Australian government funding so I can do it right. Fingers crossed I can get my foot in the door this time. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.